This episode of I'm Sitting in a Room is brought to you by Afadi Music, music for film and media. If interested in commissioning a musical work, please email raul at afadimusic.com. That's R-A-U-L at A-F-A-R-I music.com. Yeah, okay, it's on. Okay. Now I'm starting um, for real. Hello, my name is Rebecca Lynn Lofton, and I am sitting in a room. At the beginning of this recording, I set a timer for one hour, and until it goes off, I am not allowed to look at the timer. For the next 60 minutes, I will be talking uninterrupted. Nobody will speak to me during this hour. I may move and stand if I wish, but must stay within earshot of the microphone at all times. There are no guidelines for what I must talk about, but it is suggested. I begin by describing the room around me. This is the end of my written prompt. Rod. Okay. Um. Oof. Okay, so I'm in my room in Silver Lake, Los Angeles. Um, it's very white, um, if I do say so myself. Like the, the walls are white, my furniture is white, my bed sheets are white, the, um, the AC unit is white. The only thing that I have that is colorful in my room is um, like two uh, like sticky paint thingies. I don't even know how to describe. They're samples, essentially. They're samples for when I eventually like paint my room. I'm trying to decide on what color I want it to be so that way it's not super white. Because <laughs> right now it's uh, too white. Um, like America. Uh, too, too white. So um, there's that and I have my books like, wrote up on my bookshelf. And um, it's only like a small fraction of them. I just got sent in the mail all of my like actual books, like all of the ones that I left in Oklahoma. Um, when I broke up with my boyfriend, he was like supposed to like, drive them all out um, like a couple of years ago when I moved to LA, but then we broke up like within two months of me being here. And so they've just been sitting in Oklahoma for like two years. So um, thank you, Sarah Harder, for mailing this back. I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, it's kind of surreal to have all of my old books and all of my things that I had definitely forgotten about um, and just have them mailed to me. Like, you don't, I didn't choose what was mailed to me, I guess, if that makes any sense. Like, Sarah just took everything that was in the boxes and just mailed that. And then I look back and I'm like, oh God, why did I ever want any of this? <laughs> um, not my books. Most of them I still want, except for, like, acting textbooks. I'm like, oh God, why did I ever think I needed Meisner? Why did I, <laughs> why did I ever think that that would be an unnecessary um, thing in my life? Um, I'm sure that everyone talks about when they're on this, they're like, how am I supposed to talk for an hour? And, um, uh, lo and behold, how am I supposed to talk for an hour? Um, it feels like a, feels like a one-way therapy session in which no conclusions are ever reached, you know? Like I had, um, a therapy session, I guess it was yesterday. And um, it was like a consultation, first meeting with her. And um, she was super cool and super confident, like competent. Uh, that was the first time I'd ever met with a therapist and felt like they knew what they were talking about and that I would potentially like them as a person. <laughs> Usually it's one or the other. Um, I've met with a fair amount of therapists in my life, but I haven't gone to any of them for very long, if I'm being honest. Um, Wait one second. I'm I'm gonna wait. I I I hope you can still hear me. Um, I'm connected to the mic on my shirt, but um, I'm gonna get a drink because quite honestly, I'm not sure how I'm supposed to be able to do this completely 
sober. I'm not sober. Um, also, if I'm being honest, I'm not sober. I, uh, I started drinking about two hours ago. Um, I only had one drink, but it was a Negroni, and it was kind of potent. So, um, I'm already kind of there, so I'm just going to keep on riding the wave, if that makes any sense. Because I don't know how, any how anyone talks for an hour interrupted completely sober. If you can, if you were one of the few people who could do that, you're listening to this, good on you. I couldn't. Um, of this podcast, I listened to uh, Ali Alexander's and Beasley's, and I thought that um, they were both super interesting. It's especially um, Ali because I, I knew her ish well in college. Um, I just think it's really interesting to uh, to hear people that uh, you went to school with that you haven't talked to in a while um, speak like for long periods of time, not necessarily about what they're doing or um, or like the, the highlight reel that I guess you see on social media, but just actually what's going on in their life. Um, or at least what they want to talk about. I mean, Ali talked about science, and I don't know. <laughs> I'm not a science enough person um, to talk about that. I, I sort of tried to brainstorm topics that I could talk to uh, the very few people, I'm sure, that are listening. It's probably just Diego at this point, in which case, hi, Diego. It was lovely seeing you the other night. Diego and I had, um, side note, a really excellent night um catching up like probably last week when he was here in LA uh that was really lovely it had been a long time since I had seen his face and it was really lovely to see him um yeah it's always it's always weird to <laughs> to catch up with people who at one point because of the way that OU works you feel so like so connected to and very much part of a defined community at the beginning of your time. At least I did, you know, you like I came in with all of the other freshmen together and you're sort of bonded in the newness of everything. And um, just having that world be your bubble and having it be like that small, community be your entire world and allowed to be your entire world for a brief period of time. That spell kind of wore off pretty quickly, um, for me at least, which is I think probably why I left school early. Um, but it was a really weirdly good and weirdly sad time to be alive when I was a freshman. Um, I was like 18 and I had no idea what I was doing. Um, <laughs> I don't think anyone does. Um, and even if you think that you do, which I absolutely thought I did, I totally thought that I knew what the fuck was up, um, because I had partied before. And so I thought that that was like, well, I've already partied before. This is new to some people. So. I'm already ahead of the curve, but in reality, I, I had also no idea what the fuck was going on. Like, the greatest, not the greatest priority in my life, but the thing at the forefront of my mind was making a good impression on my professors, and, um, yeah, I don't know, it was making a good impression on my professors and who would be cast in which shows, and, um, like who would get an agent first, who would, um, you know, break out and who would move to LA or New York or Chicago first, you know, like what were they doing two years, one year after graduation? And um, then you sort of step back and you realize um, the world is a lot bigger. It always was. Um, but I have to pretend like it wasn't for um, like nine months, I guess you could say. Um, I guess I felt like my world was really big when I was 16, 17. I knew a lot of people. Um, 
and I like grew up in a downtown area at least for the latter half of my high school years I was like you know walking up and down 6th street in Austin and I had like <laughs> a fake <laughs> and um was going to concerts and then I was really overwhelmed by it and I guess going to OU was kind of like a breath of fresh air like I could just be um I could just be in a small town and I could just kind of rest. Um, it wasn't restful, but it was still nice. It was like isolating, but it was isolating together. I guess if that makes any sense. I um, Some of my friends that went to New York for school, a lot of them actually, and a lot of my friends that went to UT or went to California for school was sort of like, why <laughs> why are you going to Oklahoma for school? I mean, of course, it was a really good acting school, so people that knew acting didn't really question it too much. But I think that they were still a little bit confused of like, I don't know, the training is good, but um, there's not a ton of connections that come through it for a lot of people. I was lucky enough to where the the one connection that I did make before I moved out to LA was through OU. Um, so I was like very fortunate in that, but I wouldn't necessarily say that that was like because of OU. <laughs> I'd say that was just because we happen to like be alumni of the same school or were about to be. But everything that was very important to me then, um, like everything that I um, sort of thought that I was going to really care about in five years or 10 years was just absolutely completely um, thrown out the window. I didn't care about acting anymore by my senior year. I didn't care about agents. I didn't care about um, any of it. I just, I wanted to write and I wanted to direct and I knew that I wasn't very good at it yet. <laughs> and I didn't know how I was supposed to get better um, if I hadn't gone to school for it, I didn't know how to do anything. The only um, phone connection I had was through a boyfriend of mine um, who was like much older. I was like 19, he was like 26, 27, and he was like an Oklahoma film guy. And um, he helped me like fill my capstone and stuff, and he was shit. Um, but like, I don't know, I, like looking back, you sort of wonder how you knew so little about anything. And looking back, I'm kind of like, oh God, how did you not know about lighting? How did you not know about any of these things? But like, of course I didn't, of course I didn't know anything. Like, why would I, you know? when you don't go to school for it and it's not offered to you. You just kind of watch things and hope that one day things will get better and you just keep on making things and, you know, like the pipe dream version of it, that one day you could be really good and one day you could make some, like something that somebody would really like and some something that someone would really connect to. And sometimes I feel like I'm, you know, like, good. Most of the time, I don't. Um, most of the time, I feel like I'm, I'm really bad um, at my job and that um, work and that I'm never going to be really good and that um, maybe I should have never quit acting in the first place because at least that's kind of safer less vulnerable, I guess you could say, like, it's not, um, it's not your work, I guess, because if it's bad, then you can kind of blame it on bad script or bad direction or bad editing or all of these other things that aren't you. But when you're a director or a writer, the entire thing is you, especially a director. Like that's how it's viewed in the film world. You know, this is your project. And if you didn't cast 
good actors and if you didn't hire the right people and if you didn't you know write the right script then and it's shit that's your fault it's like stand-up comedy you know like it's if you don't like stand-up comedy you're kind of saying that you don't like you like your essence as a performer and that's not to say that anybody's told me that like my work is bad nobody's told me that my work is bad I will say <laughs> the only time that somebody has like really hurt my feelings um in regards to my work is when I was uh dating a guy last year he was like an NYU cinematographer and um he <laughs> he's like worked on a lot of big project stuff he was like a Brentwood kid which means that he's just like has kind of been born with connections like his aunt is like very good friends with Meg Ryan they go out to Nobu all the time he went to a very fancy private school in LA and um yeah like I don't know when he watched Marcy Avenue it was like an early cut so it wasn't as good as the one that is um kind of circling through festivals now is a rough cut he was like I mean yeah here are all the things that I would change and he was like I mean it's I guess got something different than most student films do and um I was like I'm not I'm not a student anymore I've been graduated for like a year and a half and he was like yeah but I mean like people your age it was just like he didn't mean it to be mean, but it was like still really hurtful because I instinctively knew that like the the quality of work that he was producing as a senior in college is probably on par with the work that I'm producing now, two years out of school. I mean, like I didn't go to school for it, so that makes sense, but it was still hurtful to know that I wasn't on his level and he didn't see me as being on his level. I mean, in part, he's just an asshole, but I think he was probably right. I wish that I could talk about something that wasn't work, but um, sometimes I don't really know what else to talk about. Um, I get this way even with my friends. Sometimes um, Martha gets sick of it. She's like, <laughs> Like, I have to, I have to stop talking to you right now because otherwise all we're going to do is talk about work. Um, we don't always talk about work, but sometimes when I get on a roll, it's, it's hard to stop me. Um, I don't know, I guess we could talk about, I'm, I'm a bisexual, <laughs> I guess that's the only thing that comes to mind that's of interest to me. Um, I'm a bisexual who doesn't date women. I've fucked women. I've been on dates with women, but I don't date women. I say it's because I don't have a romantic attachment to them, but I don't think that's true. I think it's just because I'm scared of them because dating women is scary. Because um, dating men very easy. It is very formulaic. They are a known quantity. Whereas um, dating women is like, every woman is so different and don't know how to be on the apps and how like properly flirt with women that I don't already know very well. I don't even know how to flirt with women that I do know really well. It's incredibly difficult and um, yeah, I don't, I don't know about all that. I've tried dating men. I broke up with um, like a shitty boyfriend that I dated for like on and off a year, mostly on for about six months. And I broke up with him um, when it was Oscars night and I told him that I needed the week to just like right and so I wanted to schedule time for us to see each other rather than just playing playing it by ear and uh, he got really upset with that and he said um, he said I wish 
successful Rebecca could be the same as girlfriend Rebecca. And on one hand, I guess I knew what he meant, but mostly I just kind of thought of that as like a really sick behavior and like kind of a shitty thing to say about somebody. You know, because to me, it's always like, it's only, um, it's only ever me, I guess. Um, like, I don't know how to be anything else. I'm a lot better at being successful or at least trying to be than being a girlfriend, maybe. Maybe that was what he was trying to say, but, um, yeah, I just don't know how he could see me as two different people like that. But what I really think he meant was just that when I'm working on things, he doesn't become like my number one priority anymore. You know? And um, I don't know, it's hard for me to have somebody be my number one priority at all times when work is so all consuming for me. I guess I sort of think that once I become successful, once I've reached like a modicum of, you know, of where I think my life should be, then maybe I can settle down and like spend all my time on a person and, you know, have a baby and get married or something. But I just don't. It's hard for me to form relationships and work at the same time. It's hard for me to form relationships just in general. Like I'm very good at making friends. Um, it's easy for me to make friends, but it's hard for me to maintain lots of friends that are not like within my very inner circle of like, you know, four or five people. And I'm lucky enough to even have four or five people that are considered to be my, like, quote-unquote inner circle. Like, I'm so lucky for that. Um, but a lot of them are in different states. Like, my family friends, who I consider to be siblings, are in um, about to be in Phoenix. And one of them is in Seattle, and so is his girlfriend, who I'm pretty close to. And all my friends seem to be in Brooklyn. Um, except for Martha and Sarah, who's coming back out here soon, and Olivia, and um, Andrew, I guess, who I'm now, I guess, pretty close to. Um, Andrew is, like, probably one of the funniest people I've ever met. <laughs> He's, like, just this absolute, like, wild card of a person, but, like, super chill and super nice. Um, he's an actor, Andrew Lutheran, um, he's, like, classic skater dude, and, um, what's so crazy is, um, like, we met on set of the web series that we filmed, Eve Gets a Boyfriend, and, um, it's so funny because I realized that he actually was in, a, um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm listening to see if my roommate's home. <laughs> okay, no, I think I'm good. Um, <laughs> I like specifically picked a night in which she would be out so that I wouldn't be embarrassed to be talking in my room for like an hour. Um, anyway, yeah, he ended up, we looked him up on IMDb like before we cast him and we realized that he was in the Gia Coppola movie Palo Alto, um, which if you were on Tumblr in 2014 was very popular. <laughs> it was like the Emma, the, the Emma Roberts and Jack Kilmer um, vehicle. I guess you could say it was like an indie drama about high school with James Franco. And I was like obsessed with that movie when I was like 16, 17. Like I was like, like when it came out, I was like, I watched it over and over and over again. Like I was just obsessed with like the cinematography. I didn't know that movies could be shot in that way. I didn't know that um, like narratives could be kind of like messy, but also mundane and that like nothing could happen in a movie and that would be enough. 
Like, I didn't know that. I guess that was, like, my first um, modern indie movie that I watched. And uh, I guess that was sort of when I thought, I mean, I, I mainly thought that I could be a director with Lady Bird. But um, when I saw Palo Alto, I sort of thought, I was like, I kind of want to make a movie like that. Like, something, I don't know, I just didn't know that movies could be made like that. I didn't know that they could be so touchable, so um, in reach, so realistic, I guess, to be made. And I just thought it was beautiful. And then to realize that Andrew was in it, it was just kind of like, um, I don't know, it's just kind of like a dream come true, like having this aspect of my teenagehood actually be um, fulfilled, I guess, in my adulthood, if that makes any sense. Um, yeah, man, I, he's great. He's really fucking talented. I was listening to the audio of Evie today, and, um, he has, like, all of the funniest lines, like, by far, like, by far the funniest lines, and most of them we didn't give him, like, most of them he just, like, made up, and I'm like, I wish that I was as funny as that, like, I wish I had written that, but I hadn't, um, that was me opening a drink, <laughs> I'm trying to keep my buzz, yeah, and he lives on a boat for like dirt cheap. It's very funny. It's a very strange situation. I don't know. <laughs> I don't entirely know why, but um, yeah, he spends like only like $700, $800 a month to just park this fucking boat in the marina and he hops the fence for the nearby apartment complex to go sit in their hot tub. And um, yeah, like we went over, um, me and Maddie Brady the other night to his boat and we ended up visiting um like a weed guy like one of their friends and we get into his house and there's like three dogs like all like going at each other they're all like labradoodles so they're fucking expensive and the apartment is like insane it's like three thousand dollars a month easy like insane apartments and we go into his office and there's just like piles and piles and piles of huge bags of weed. Like at least a hundred thousand dollars worth. I would say probably close to like half a million dollars of weed in one singular room. And like Andrew just pulls out like we're acting like it's like like a fucking trap house, like as if weed were not legal in California. And like, Andrew like pulls out basically like a thousand dollars and just hands it over. And he gets this like huge bag of weed, like probably a pound. I don't know how weed rations work. I've never been much of a stoner, so I genuinely don't know. But like, I would say probably as much as like a small baby, you know? Like that is how much weed he was given. And he just like shoves it under his shirt and we and we leave and he puts it in the boat where there are no locks. And there's just like $2,000 worth of weed just sitting in Andrew's unlocked boat. And I'm like, okay, like go off, I guess. <laughs> like, I guess that's good for you. Like, <laughs> I don't know. It's just absurd that like weed is so legal here and yet it still kind of feels like dirty it's been legal for so long but it still is not regulated enough for it to be like not a little i don't know it always feels like a back-end deal it always feels like we shouldn't be doing it even when i go into like a dispensary it still feels like i shouldn't be there it feels like it feels like a back room at you know a bar it feels like a speakeasy like the cops could come at any minute. Ah, LAPD. Ah, you know. I don't know. That was a tangent. Um. Uh, and I just spilled on myself. Um. Speaking of the web series, um, I ended up dating a guy very briefly who's in it. Um, he's tall and just hot unfortunately. Um, it didn't work out because he's not ready for a relationship. 
womp womp, it's fine. Um, <laughs> he's just like tall and fucking fine. And his character in the web series, I should not be saying this, <laughs> I'm praying to God. He never listened to this. I genuinely don't think he will. However, fingers crossed. Um, <laughs> I, just, I guess I will promote it on Instagram. Uh, yeah, because he follows me. Ah! Anyway, um, he actually ends up playing a character who doesn't want a relationship with the main character. So they get into, they start dating and they really like each other and it's starting to look like it might become more serious. And then he's like, hey, so I don't want to be in a relationship and like I am just getting out of a really serious one and I'm just not ready for that and I need to like work on work and work on myself before I do all of these things and the main character Evie is like okay and so she dates around and they end up breaking up and um <laughs> when when this guy uh calls me to say that he's ending it uh, we had only been dating for like, you know, a couple of weeks. It really wasn't that big of a deal. But um, he calls me and he's like, hey. And I was like, oh no. And he basically used the script that I gave him like in the web series. Like it was like almost like word for word. And I was like, dude, what the fuck? Like I didn't say that, but in my head I was just like, oh my god, like, you couldn't even think of anything original to say? He was like, I mean, you're, like, so beautiful or whatever, and, like, you're awesome, and, like, I really like you, but I just, I, like, I can't be in a relationship, and that's just obviously where we're headed, and I'm not ready for that, and I was like, okay, and then, like, we said goodbye, and I hung up, and I haven't talked to him since, but, um, Yes, that's exactly what happens in the web series, almost word for word, except it didn't happen over the phone. And this one did happen over the phone, which I normally would be like, all right, do it in person. You're being a chicken. But I actually did say, I was like, hey, just so you know, like, I would always prefer to just have it, you know, have the band-aid be ripped off. So if you ever just, you know, feel the urge to break up with me, just call me. So he was actually, you know, going with my wishes. Um, so I guess that's nice of him. I really haven't been, um, dumped many times in my life, and it's very, um, humbling, I guess, if that makes any sense, but it's also, I guess, okay, here's, here's my take on dumping versus being dumped. So for dumping, the initial pain is very little. It's like, you don't, at least for me, at least, I don't feel a lot of pain when I break up with someone immediately. And then I usually like either have a breakdown a couple weeks later, or I just kind of have a low grade missing them every once in a while that comes up for the next like six months. It's always very fleeting, so it's never debilitating. So I would always prefer to be the one dumping someone. But if you're being dumped, the initial pain is so severe. It's so shocking. And then eventually it just kind of wanes until it's completely disappeared. And you sort of forget what they ever looked like. Unless of course you still follow them on social media, but even then you still kind of forget what they looked like with you. You know, you only see them now as they are now. You don't necessarily remember what they looked like when you were with them. And so having been both dumped and dump, wait, <laughs> having been both dumped and been the one dumping, I think I would still prefer dumping. Yeah, I would still prefer that. I would always be the one, I would always prefer to be the one to end it because there are some people who really like the feeling of longing, but I don't. And I don't really, I would much rather miss somebody than like long for them. I guess the burden of like knowing that there was nothing that you could do to make it better was the one getting dumped. 
is kind of nice. Like, I guess that's kind of nice, right? Like, because, you know, like, you did all that you could. Like, there was nothing that you could have said to make it any difference. You did your piece. It just didn't work out. It's kind of like, you know, auditioning for a role than not getting it. Like, that doesn't, that's fine. Like, you don't have to live with the regret of, like, oh, like, what if I hadn't? Like, blah. So, theoretically, it's better to be dumped, but I honestly, I don't live with a lot of regret. I've never regretted a breakup in my life. So, yeah, I'd still, I'd still always be the one to do the dumping. My therapist should definitely hear about that on Tuesday. <laughs> we're, we're supposed to go over, um like mindfulness exercises, which is super dumb. I mean, it's not dumb. That's not to say it's dumb, but um, it's dumb because it sounds so much like acting school. And I'm like, God, like no wonder everyone treated it like therapy. That's because it was, it just wasn't implemented correctly. <laughs> but also maybe acting school should have never been therapy. Like why? Why were we ever treating it like that? You know, like you have to take care of yourself. You have to take care of your mind. But shouldn't that be something else that kind of comes separately as like in therapy? And then acting school is like everything else that like therapy doesn't deal with that is pertaining to your craft. But like therapy is not the same as acting school. And they really treat it like that when you are in school. They really do. And like, I can't say to what acting classes are like once you get out of school because I didn't really take any. Um, but I, I hope that it's different. I hope that it's more useful knowledge, one that doesn't damage you in the process of exercising something from yourself in the process of feeling and in the process of building character. I hope that, I don't know, in the future people aren't damaged in that attempt to do so. Because I know very few people that, that haven't been touched by acting that kind of way. I know very few people, at least ones with trauma, I, I know very few people. And if not trauma, at least, like, some severe mental illness. Like, whoever goes to acting school who is mentally healthy. You know? Like, I can't tell if that is because you feel like there's no other outlet for you other than theater. You feel like that is the only place for you to express what you need to express. I think that that was the case for me because I wasn't a good enough writer to express what I needed to express in that capacity. And I knew I wasn't. And I knew I couldn't get into good writing programs. I mean, I don't know that. I didn't try. But acting was like the safe bet. Like I knew that I could get it all out. I knew I could work through my shit or at least attempt to and feel better or at least feel like it wasn't being buried because it had to come out at some point. I was so sad. I was so sad in high school. And I was so sad in college. I really don't think I was happy until I moved to Los Angeles. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I was happy until I did. I used to say that um, I wasn't happy until I met my college boyfriend, um, the one I dated my senior year. And I think in some ways that was true. Like, I think that I learned what safety was. So I learned what um, being loved was. But I don't necessarily think that's the same as being happy. I wasn't happy. I was happy being isolated. Like, I was content. I was okay with that. But I wasn't happy being alone because I wasn't happy anywhere. Even when I was with him, I still wasn't like happy. 
yeah, I don't, I don't know. I really only think it started to change for me when I started to write screenplays and when I started to, I don't know, live here. Maybe it's just that I just got away from everything and I just needed somewhere that was different. Maybe it was just that I was old enough. Like maybe that's all it takes. Maybe you just need to get old enough in order to see everything from hindsight. Maybe things just stopped happening to me. Like maybe bad things just, I was like far enough away from it in order for it to not affect me. Because even college wasn't really a safe experience. Like I wasn't really traumatized or anything, but even like, like one of the teachers, like, I mean, we could go into like a whole other podcast about OU faculty, but um, like I was in stage combat when I was a senior and I was pretty good at it at first. And then one day we went from non-contact combat to um, like physical combat. Um, you know, like safely doing hand-to-hand contact. And he pulls up one of the kids and he puts him in an arm lock. And I'm like grimacing, like you can see it on my face and I'm disgusted because I'm triggered because this is like something that I have like experienced before and it was really hard for me. And then the teacher looks at me and he sees my face and instead of like asking me what was wrong or letting it go and been like, okay, well, like maybe this is a lot for her. Instead of letting it go, he pulls me up and he does it on me. He does the on lock. And I'm like clearly in emotional pain and it hurts. And um, then he just like holds me there and he doesn't hold me until um like for about like 30 seconds and then finally he lets me go and then he's about to do it again and I just like back up and shake my head and I run out the door and um I didn't really come back to class after that like I tried maybe once again but um after that I just wrote essays and did an independent study about combat because I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't go to class. I couldn't. And like we brought in a new teacher when the guy, like when the other guy left. And even the new teacher, um, like he had everyone go around in a circle and describe their relationship to violence. And basically everyone was like, I remember like me and my brother fighting or like I remember like watching some kids get beat up in school or like I had a fist fight with my friend or something and I was just like I <laughs> like what the fuck like how can you how can you have an honest discussion with a group of people about violence like who who in the who in their right mind would raise their hand and say that they had experienced either like domestic abuse or like that they had been hit on the street by a stranger like who who in their right mind would express that to someone to a class like that that makes no sense to me how you could take sharing something so lightly. You know, like, I think that that's maybe like the problem with acting is like, use sharing and revealing yourself as currency to get what you want to accomplish your scene to win favor for being the most vulnerable or whatever. But it's like, in doing that, you take it so lightly it becomes nothing because it becomes a tool. And in becoming a tool, you might get more desensitized just to talking about it. 
but you don't get desensitized from the memory. Like there's nothing that isn't traumatized by you. You're not untraumatizing yourself, you're just re-traumatizing yourself. And that goes with everything, like even tapping into breakups, like even tapping into like problems with your mom, like literally anything. It doesn't have to be abuse. It doesn't have to be something really drastic. It just can be, it can be anything. It's, I just think it's really fucked up how like we're encouraged to feel pain when it is unnecessary. I don't know why anyone would ever feel pain if it were not necessary. I mean, I do know why I've been there, but like, I can't imagine an institution that could sleep at night knowing that they encouraged it. I can't, I don't understand. And like, I don't know, maybe it was just that like they themselves were failed actors or something. Because it's not just OU, it's it's the entire higher education system of the arts. We are fed um, a lie and it completely disappoints us. And that's not to say that my time at OU wasn't very special, it was. Like, I learned a lot. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be the writer that I am. I certainly wouldn't be a screenwriter if I hadn't gone to acting school. And I don't think that I would be even half a good screenwriter if I hadn't written. Or, I'm sorry, if I hadn't acted. Like, if I hadn't acted, I wouldn't have read all those fucking plays. And I wouldn't have known how to write dialogue. And I wouldn't have known... I wouldn't have known. So I don't regret any of it. Ever. But I question their methods. And I hope at least with the new guys. I, I wasn't there when the new director came in. I hope that it gets better. I hope. I'm vaping now. I stopped smoking um, because smoking is bad for you. Um, but now I'm just vaping more often um, <laughs> because before I used to only smoke at night and now I vape all day. So I really think it's a draw on which one is worse for me. This one I just have an excuse to have stimulants coursing through my veins at all times. So. Okay, well, since I'm not allowed to look at the timer, um, I don't know, I guess I could try and read something. Um, ooh, what should I read? Um, okay, I'll read something that I wrote first um, because I'm selfish. Um, and then I guess I'll read something from a book that I read recently. I just finished it tonight. Yay. Okay. All right. Um, this is completely unedited. I haven't read this since I wrote it. So, um, bear with me if I don't know how to read my own handwriting. I had my first kiss in a dressing room. Our director, who is a senior and now lives off Richmond, gave us each a half stick of gum and told us to get it over with. She sat back on a bench, and we inched closer. We were supposed to be in love in a play, and I was supposed to leave him. He was mysterious and beautiful for a 14-year-old. I looked at his freckles while he placed his hands on my face. He was shaking, and I can't remember what I did. What I sounded like if I was shaking, too, but I remember what it felt like when he kissed me. Cool, delicate, like a real first kiss. He is now in a coma. People who are from where I am from have a habit of dying. Everyone dies, even young people, but every time one of us is picked off, it feels like a twist in the idyllic promise of my hometown. We were rich and well-funded, and divorce was still a little taboo. Families were supposed to stay together, and children were meant to stay alive. Because if not here, where? 
nobody else had a fighting chance, but we did. And even that never seemed to be enough. It started when I was 12. A girl at a party died when she fell down the stairs, drunk, and nobody called the cops. They thought she was sleeping it off on the landing. People talked about her with an anguished hush. Oh, fuck, I fucked that up. <laughs> People talked about her with an anguished hush. She left a family, yes, but more than that, the detail people got hung up on was that she had a twin. They were identical. They were both cheerleaders and popular from all accounts. They looked, uh... Everyone looked at the remaining half, and I did too, I suppose, as just that. An identical half. An identical reminder of the first stain I can remember on that town. Is that all I have? Yeah, that's all I have. Um, so going on that, um, yeah, the, the first person I ever kissed is now in a coma. Um, yeah. I didn't, like, know him super well at the end of high school, but, um, at the beginning of high school we were in theater together, and it was sort of a mystery why he was ever in theater. He was never really that kind of kid. He was, like, a skater, and, um, I thought he was really cool. Um, yeah, he was really beautiful. He is, I mean, he's alive, but um, especially at the time, he was like very mysterious. He liked philosophy and he liked physics and he liked all of the things that seemed very adult to me at the time. I'm pretty sure he smoked and drank and I thought that was very cool when I was 14. Um, I was still kind of like a good girl, I guess. I was still going to church and I was still really involved in that. And I dressed like I was about to go sailing at a country club. And I remember that uh, we went on like kind of like a fake date. <laughs> um, like, it was a play, like, Look Homeward Angel, and uh, the director was like, oh, like, we need to get to know each other better. I don't think she really meant that. I think she was just, like, teasing two younger kids, and so we were supposed to go on a date. So we went to Maggiano's while, like, three other kids sat, like, two or three rows behind us, and we just sat in a booth, and he, like, twirled his fork the whole time. And he talked about how he was going to kill his cat. He wasn't going to kill his cat, but um, he was just trying to get a rise out of me just to see what I would say. I think that he thought that it was very entertaining that I was innocent. Or at least I pretended to be. That was very much the, the wall that I hid behind. Like, I was the kind of person who was... Um, I don't know, like, I had experienced a lot, but I pretended like I didn't because I thought that if I hadn't experienced anything, and if I didn't have wants, and if I didn't have desires, and if I was just like a blank slate, then that would be true, and that could be something that I could hide behind. That would make me special, because that I didn't know anything. But I, I did know things, and... He also knew things, or I felt like he did. Um, yeah, and it's fair to say that I'll miss him, because of course I won't miss him in the same way that um, his friends will if he dies. And he won't die, I'm sure. Um, but he's in a coma, and you don't know. I don't know, yeah, like, a lot of people from my school, from my high school at least, have, have died. I don't entirely know why, like, like I said, it's, you know, everything was kind of lined up for a lot of us. Like, we had really protective parents, I don't really know. I think it was maybe, like, everything was so good, I think, 
or at least it was supposed to be, but I think that whatever problems were going on at home, kids had to act out in kind of grand ways. And sometimes it was just accident. Like when I was 15, um, a girl in my Bible study died from a stroke. She just woke up one morning and she had a headache and then she died that day. And then there were a couple of kids who had cancer. And then a um, kid who was um, in my grade who I had a lot of mutual friends with, he had a seizure and died in a car accident. Um, then there was the girl who died at a party. And I don't know, it just kind of seemed like everything. I don't know, every time it happened, it sort of felt like oh, this, this makes sense, this was supposed to happen, but rather, like, it doesn't make sense that it did. You know? It's like if you're given all of the resources and if you're given, you know, money and time and all of these other things, then, like, why still does do things not work out? I don't know. So when I talk about, you know, writing and I talk about work, I think I'm just really trying to find some sense of like purpose in my life. So that way I don't think that it could have been me, that I could have, you know, got hit by a car and been in a coma. I did get in a car accident, actually, yesterday. It was just a fender bender. I've gotten in too many car accidents in LA. I've been in three, three now. They're all fender benders, but still, that's really bad. That's really bad. I'm supposed to be a good driver, and like, I guess I am, but not in stop and go traffic. In stop and go traffic, I'm like a shit show. I'm really bad at paying attention um, at more than one thing at a time. And I guess that makes me a not good driver sometimes. I'm great on the freeway, though. Everybody else is scared of the freeway, but I, I never am. I guess that's maybe the only thing that makes me a good driver is that I have no fear. Okay, well, I'm gonna um, go up and get a book that I like. Give me a second. Yeah, because this shit doesn't run out soon. I don't know. What the fuck I'm supposed to talk about? Okay, so this is Chelsea Hodson from her um, essay collection, Tonight I'm Someone Else. Um, this is a book that a friend of mine recommended that I immediately bought and she was in super right that I would like it because I did. Okay, so this essay is called The End of Longing. I met a woman who drew illustrations of the products she wanted instead of buying them. Her wall was filled with silhouettes of designer handbags and big screen televisions. The black and white drawing satisfied her, but looking at the wall made me want things I never knew I wanted. I've had enemies so intense that it felt romantic, so mutual it felt like love. The truth is, I don't care what anyone thinks, I said to him over lunch. That's noble, he said, not believing me. I think it's true, I said. I want it to be true. Sometimes honesty requires three attempts. Once I saw a magic show so convincing I refused to acknowledge the possibility of illusion. I've done that with love ever since. Looking at the photo he took of, me, took of me with my face half lit against the brick building, my boyfriend said, when I make a movie, I want the whole thing to look like this. Okay. My friend and I went to see in a movie about women in New York. The plot reminded me of my life and I loved it. The plot reminded my friend of her life and she hated it. 
I think I identified with the wrong character, she said. Old letters are not proof of love, but they are proof that we were aimed at, even reached for. He said to me, Everyone just wants to be looked at, and turned away from me to face the window. Okay, I finished the last line because the recording cut out and I, I wanted I, I wanted you guys to hear it. Okay. <laughs> Good night guys. Bye. I am sitting in a room is a co-cast network and collective arts production created by Anthony Wilkinson and Rachel Bandy. Music by Raul Riverapun, edited by Diego de la Espriella. All CoCast Network productions are made possible by our Patreon supporters. You can find us at patreon.com slash coarts. That's patreon.com slash c-o-a-r-t-s. If you are interested in being featured in an episode, please email co.artsproductions at gmail.com. And that's co.artsproductions at gmail.com.